Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. First a word from our sponsor, FinScan, and then my discussion with Juan. Today's podcast is sponsored by FinScan. FinScan is a global provider of AML and KYC consulting and compliance solutions. FinScan is the only software platform with a built-in data quality engine for unparalleled accuracy and transparent matching algorithms for easier configuration and explainability. These features minimize false positives while reducing the risk of missing true hits. FinScan's comprehensive offerings include sanctions and PEP screenings, beneficial owner due diligence, transaction screening and monitoring, and ID validation capabilities. FinScan can be deployed via on-premise, SaaS, or web services API to meet their clients' data security, data privacy, and efficiency requirements. This podcast was recorded in February 2020. Since then, COVID-19 has swept the globe. You can learn about ACAM's efforts to address COVID-19-related issues at hashtag online with ACAMS or ACAMS.org. In this podcast, I speak with Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of the consultancy Financial Integrity Network. We talk about some of the long-standing concerns of the anti-financial crime community, concerns which he's uniquely qualified to address given his service in government, culminating in being named the first ever assistant secretary of the Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crimes. Author of Treasury's Wars, a look at the use of U.S. economic power to advance the country's national security and foreign policy priorities. Juan discusses what's happened since he wrote that book seven years ago, including the threat from proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, the evolution of sanctions, and the rise of an international ultra-right-wing terrorist movement. Here we go. Juan, it is a pleasure to be here and to finally get a chance to talk with you. Thank you, Um, Karen. Thanks for the invitation. Needless to say, you're such an important figure in the whole world of sanctions and financial policy. I appreciate that. I'm not not (laughs) sure I would agree with it, but I appreciate that. We're starting off. i got to flatter you at the beginning, (laughs) right? There we go. It's been seven years since Treasury's War. Yeah. Amazing, actually. It's hard to believe it's been that long. I I was actually a little surprised because I think we spoke back the book first came out that long ago. So tell me, when you look back on the book, what's the world then and the world now? You know, I wrote the book to capture the history of that post 9-11 period, to explain the domain of power that was emerging in terms of the use of financial and economic tools, and then to tell the the management and bureaucratic story, which I thought was fascinating Mm -hmm. of that time, Mm -hmm. all of the transitions happening. So what was happening when I published the book was I think there was a greater appreciation for what that story was. People were understanding that Iran was under a great deal of pressure. They had seen what had happened to North Korea and understood that these were different kinds of tools and strategies. We had been through the constriction of the Al-Qaeda network. So when I wrote the book, I think it came out at a good point where people were sensitive to what was happening in this field, the fact that you now had the Treasury Department in the middle of these things, you now had financial campaigns as a part of national security doctrine and strategy. What wasn't realized yet was what would evolve. And I think where we are now versus 2013, something I try to capture in the last chapter of the book and in the epilogue. The last chapter I'm very proud of. It's called The Coming Financial Wars. And I think at least some of what I laid out there has transpired, which is to say, I think where we are now is not only is there a recognition that these tools are powerful, they're important, there's almost an immediate reflexive retreat to the use of these tools and strategies. You see what Congress does. 
We've seen yeah. what's happened on Russia. We've seen what's happened on Venezuela. Yeah. We've seen the expansion of the sanctions programs to every form of transnational security risk that we have. It's right. not just terrorist financing, proliferation finance. It's now corruption. It's now human rights with the Global Magnitsky Act. It's cyber malicious activity with President Obama's April 1, 2015 executive order right. and everything in between that is now part of the landscape. But even more importantly, it's the fact that these sets of tools and strategies to exclude financial and rogue actors is now part of a broader tableau of what I'd call economic competition, confrontation, and even financial warfare. Yes. And I think you've seen that come to a head under the Trump administration where trade policy, export controls, right. the expansion of CFIUS with the FIRMA Act, how we think about the use of positive economic tools in the BUILD Act, for example, the expansion of OPIC, all of those things in concert with sanctions and anti-money laundering tools now form part of a broader set of doctrines around national economic security. And that's what I had suggested in Chapter 16 was coming. Yeah. And I think that's where we are. And so that begs the question, what are the limits of sanctions volume and economic tools that you can use? Absolutely right. And again, this is something I'm proud of that I forecasted a bit because there was already a debate in 20. 12, 2013, when the book came out, about the overuse of sanctions. I called it in the book yeah. the tipping point. There's a tipping point at which we're asking too much of the private sector, where we're overusing these tools, and where we're creating disincentives for the use of the U.S. dollar or even the attractiveness of the U.S. system. Core point of the book, and I think anybody who's following these issues understands this, our ability, the U.S.'s ability to use these tools derives from the power of the dollar the attractiveness of our capital markets, and the both integrity and strength of our economy. And to the extent that we do things to weaken faith, trust, confidence, yeah. and sustainability of those pillars, that begins to undermine our ability to operate. Another thing I had talked about in the book, and I think it has come to pass and it's right before us, is how does the use of new technologies, crypto technologies, blockchain New payment systems allow for rogue actors, or maybe not even rogue actors, but enablers in the system to allow for sanctions evasion, facilitate illicit finance, and to give the kinds of rogue actors that we were trying to constrict the kind of global reach and access to capital that these strategies are intended to prevent. And so those are all issues that yeah. we're grappling with now, as you well know. There's certainly lots of efforts to try and get around the dollar, and, and none of them have been entirely successful yet. But it kind of leads to the question also, are we winning the war? It's a great question. I think one way of thinking about it is we may be winning the financial battles. Right. We may not be winning the long-term economic war. That is to say, I'm not sure that's exactly right, but that's a way of asking the question because there's no doubt that these tools, when taken to maximum extent, and we've heard this from the Trump administration, maximum pressure campaigns on right. North Korea, on Iran, right. taking the gloves off with Venezuela and Cuba, yeah. those kinds of things. These things hurt. We know that they do based on empirical studies. One of the things that's happened since the publication of the book, there's been more studies by international experts, by U.S. authorities to see how effective are these tools really? Do they really hit the, the intended yeah. targets? And I think the conclusion I've seen based on the studies is absolutely yes. Maybe short term may not be as deep as you want, may not have the desired long-term strategic impact about affecting regime decision-making, but do the tools actually work to 
diminish value, constrict access to capital, and do the things mechanically that sanctions and these anti-money laundering tools are intended to do? The answer is absolutely yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So the quick answer to your question is, for these various campaigns, they obviously hurt the targets. They constrain their ability to operate. We see in these cases that these regimes or the targets have to make strategic choices about where they invest, where they use their dollar, how they evade. Right. It was our mantra at Treasury. These tools make it harder, costly, and riskier to raise and move money around the world. Yeah, There's yeah. no question. Longer-term question is, are they strategically effective, and are we undermining our long-term ability to use these tools? It's one thing to pin your opponent down where you get their attention, and then it's another thing to have a strategy about what you do from there. That's exactly right. And I think that in the book, you have frustration with the partnership between state and treasury that you feel like state want concessions too soon. But right now we maybe have an economic focus and we don't have as much of a diplomatic focus. It's a great question. And I think it's one of the questions that's arisen in the Iran context in particular. Iran's a good case study. And I testified to this at the time of the negotiation of the JCPOA. I think there was still, the divides that I talked about in the book, I think still existed between Treasury and state. Not an acrimonious divide, but a divide of understanding of how these tools worked and what we were doing to sequence the strategy to leverage these tools for maximum diplomatic effect. Part of the problem at the JCPOA, there's lots of problems, and again, folks want to look at my testimony. The problem was there wasn't a full understanding that what had been done with Iran had been to create antibodies in the system not only with respect to the sanctions in place against Iran for the nuclear file, but for the full range of illicit financial activities and risk that were tied to what Iran was doing across the board in terms of all of its malicious behavior, as well as fundamental questions about, is there transparency in the system? Do we understand beneficial ownership? Those were the underpinnings of why the Iranian campaign had such staying power and why it was so hard for American diplomats and European diplomats to try to convince, for example, European or Western banks to go back into Iran when the deal was signed. Because everyone's saying, you've convinced us for years that this is a highly risky environment, that we shouldn't do business or we should do business differently if we're going to. And now you're telling us to go back in. So it didn't make any sense conceptually. And there was a divide of understanding. The second element of this was a lack of appreciation as to how you unwind strategically. This is a point I've made with Cuba, which is we have to think more aggressively about how the diplomacy leads to the strategic unwinding and not thinking of sanctions or these tools in a kind of a light switch mode, you know, on off, which tends to be the way we've negotiated. On Iran, we may have gone to the other end of the spectrum, which is we've got maximum pressure. We understand how these tools work. Yeah. It's crushing the Iranian economy. It's now clear that we've moved beyond targeting illicit activity and the role of the IRGC in the economy to targeting, frankly, the core elements of the Iranian economy, like textiles and minerals. We've seen that at the end of 2019 with some of the new sanctions. And so then the question is, in aid of what? How does that pressure match with other elements of our strategy? Now, if you listen to Mike Pompeo and the Secretary of State, He'll say, look, we've got a strategy. It's maximum pressure. We've laid out terms of diplomacy. We're putting some military pressure on, obviously, at the Soleimani strike. And so there's a sense there is a strategy. That's why there's that suspicion that what we really are doing is regime change. I think that's part of the suspicion. And I think hopefully what's happening is quietly there are discussions about how you get to the negotiating table. The Europeans clearly want to stay at the negotiating table. And they're trying to put pressure now on Iran. But I think you're right. In a fundamental 
point of the book is these tools can't exist sui generis and can't be effective sui generis. They have to be used in concert with other tools of statecraft. They have to be part of a broader strategic set of tools and relationships. And this is where I worry with respect to China, where we begin to think that we can either use tariffs or sanctions as a way of conditioning or disciplining the situation with China, whereas it's a much longer term and much thornier set of questions. And these tools need to be thought of differently in that context. You've raised a big issue about what is it that you can achieve. Often it's pointed out that South Africa or Myanmar were successful sanctions regimes, and they did have regime change. Maybe in the end, the regime only changed so much in Myanmar. But It's a good question, though, because a core question in all this is, what are these tools for? Yeah. And there's often a binary answer or question answer in D.C. around... Well, if it doesn't change the regime, then it's not effective. This was right. the debate around Cuba when the, the Obama administration unwound some of them. I think the commentary was rather simplistic around was the Cuba program effective because these tools have strategic impact, but they have tactical impact right. as well. And part of what these tools are intended to do is can you constrain some of the behavior and activity right. that is targeted? And so that's a near-term question. Can you stop North Korea from getting access to particular materials? Can you constrain Cuba's adventurism in Africa or Central America? Can you make sure that the progression toward a weapons of mass destruction program is slower than it otherwise would be? These kinds of things are tactical results of constraining a target's ability to access goods or capital doesn't stop it if they're intent to do it, but it makes it harder and costlier. The other end of the spectrum is, does it change behavior fundamentally or change a regime fundamentally? And that is ultimately part of a broader set of tools and gets harder when you talk about more sophisticated economies, like the Russian economy, for example, where the sanctions program and the anti-money laundering tools have had to be used in a more refined way with the blowback and the boomerang effect squarely in mind, especially with European dependencies on oil and gas. Look at the German case. And those cases of major economies present more difficult issues as to how effective can these tools be in the long term, especially if you don't have diplomacy, military pressure, and other tools used in concert. And I'm just thinking, you know, all of these situations are so very different. North Korea clearly wants to have nuclear weapons at almost any cost. It isn't clear, can Cuba be weaned off of the adventurism if there's enough incentive to do it. Each program is different. You look at the technicalities. Again, the Russia program was a great innovation over the last few years. Venezuela program is very different because of the role of of PDVSA and CITGO and the complexities of the licenses in the Venezuela context. How these sanctions have been used, especially recently in the Trump administration, the willingness to go after big targets, whereas before in some ways, there were third rails of sanctions enforcement. You wouldn't go after a major yeah. Chinese bank or a major Chinese shipping company like Costco, which the administration did last year. Yeah. Or you wouldn't name a, a Rusal or a Pedavesa. These became signature designations under those programs. So, the, so is it good or bad to do that? To your earlier proposition, it depends. It depends, it depends on the situation, the timing, if the sanctions are configured to deal with the externalities. I think one of the criticisms of some of the actions to go after these big targets, including the Central Bank of Iran, keep in mind, yeah, you know, yeah. these fundamental targets that in the past had not really been targets, is do we understand how complex these markets are 
do we understand really the second and third order effects? The unwinding of some of these sanctions is a good example of that, where the government in OFAC having to modify based on the effects in the marketplace. I do think Treasury's gotten more sophisticated over time. State Department's gotten more sophisticated in thinking about what those externalities are, doing outreach, bringing in other parts of the government, economists, financial experts, to understand what are those second, third order effects and how do we create a regime that actually accounts for that. Should I put you on the spot too? I can't remember in your testimony, so many people on both sides of the political spectrum were leery of leaving the JCPOA, even those that said it's really imperfect. Do you have feelings? Yeah, you know, I'm happy to be on the spot because I've been pretty open about this. At the time of the JCPOA, I was always in favor of diplomacy. You know, we had two tracks when we laid out the Iran pressure campaign. And the pressure campaign was an aid of the diplomacy. It had its own ends unto itself, right? We were trying to constrain Iranian sponsorship of terrorism. We were trying to constrain the missile program. We were trying to constrain other activities while also dealing with the underlying corruption and other things. So that was clearly part of it, but it was clearly an aid of the diplomacy. In many ways, it worked. It got the Iranians to the table. It brought well, It certainly together. addressed the nuclear issue. There's still adventurism and whatever. Going exactly. On. So I was in favor of the diplomacy. I did not like the way the deal was structured for some fundamental reasons. And I thought we undercut our ability to dictate more of the terms of the deal in part because I think of a lack of understanding as to how effective these tools were and how much more we could do to constrain the Iranian economy. There was a bit of a, I would call it a myth circulating at the time. I think a hangover of the old Iraq sanctions day, which is to say we couldn't hold on to the sanctions. They were already kind of fraying at this. That was not the case at all with Iran. In fact, we were just, we hadn't even reached the zenith of the impact and we hadn't even used all the tools. And so There was this sort of myth that, oh, we've we've got to make a deal before this unravels, and we're not able to sustain this. In short, it could have been a better deal. It could have been a better deal in some fundamental way. So I was critical of the deal the way it was negotiated, not the fact that we're negotiating. And I think part of that had to do with the lack of understanding of these tools themselves. When we fast forward to this administration, I argued directly with the administration and openly in a public way that I thought we should stay in the deal. And get more. And get more. You could certainly negotiate other elements of it. It was also the case that we were very explicit. The Obama administration was explicit. The Europeans seemed to be on board with this. I thought we should, before we pulled out of the deal, test the proposition that we could continue to use sanctions and financial and economic measures to pressure the regime on all the other malicious activity. Again, one of the warnings I had back when the JCPOA was being negotiated was, even though we were saying we're allowing for sanctions for all these other activities, other malicious behavior, we were in essence neutering ourselves. There was really a sense that Mm -hmm. if he wants to get the benefit of this deal, we are by definition going to have to relieve pressure on the Iranian economy. And you can't do both at the same time. You just can't, given the way... Well, it's, it bought silence on some other issues, too, that we might not have wanted to have been silent Exactly. On. And so my argument was, stick with the deal. It's not a good deal in some fundamental ways, the sunset provisions, etc. But stick with the deal. You've got it. But let's push on this proposition that we've reserved on being able to deal with these other matters using these very same tools. And I think we would have gotten to the same place without the diplomatic rupture, without this transatlantic tension, and without giving Iran the high road to say, look, the Trump administration is the one who pulled out. 
We could have said, look, no, we're just effectuating what we said we were going to do all along. It's you all who are engaged in the malicious behavior requiring us to use these tools. What I don't know is whether or not the Europeans really would have found that palatable. And certainly the Trump administration's moved headlong into a maximum pressure campaign outside of the JCPOA. So you're in a role now over the past few years. I'm trying to think when Financial Integrity Network was formed. About six years ago. About six years ago. There's a heavy burden that's been placed on the financial sector. How do you helping clients deal with that? And what do you see as the problems? Yeah, we've been privileged. And I started Finn with uh, Chip Ponzi, well-known to the ACAMS universe. Chip uh, is well-known to everyone. Chip, well-known to everybody. <laughs> one of the greatest persons you'll ever meet, for those of you who haven't met him, but one of the great anti-money laundering experts of our age. So we brought on Danny Glazer as our third partner, so really a, a great triumvirate, bringing back together the team we had at Treasury. I think what's different and what's interesting is helping clients try to reach the evolving global standards as not only we articulated in the past, but as they continue to evolve. Because what we have found in the marketplace is there's often an understanding of what those requirements may look like, but a very broad delta between that and the activities, the processes, governance, training that's in the marketplace. And so we found great joy and I think success in trying to help our clients meet what those evolving global standards are, forecasting forward with them designing new systems, new governance, new training programs, new risk assessments to try to get ahead of the curve and to meet what those global standards and requirements are. Trying to get some free advice here for the people that are listening in. Is there a few things that you're seeing and telling people right now? Yeah, well, there's one thing conceptually that's really interesting from a policy perspective and then a technical consulting perspective is we're in the middle of what I call the quest for efficiency and effectiveness. We all know the system is not working, the anti-money laundering system, that is, is not working the way it's intended. Certainly not the way we as policymakers thought about it and demanded it to operate in a preventative way, a systemic way, one that was more time-sensitive, and what the current system allows for. The current system is an analog system. It's a 1980s version of what we need to be doing to prevent illicit finance. So we're right in the middle of that. So that means there's a ton of activity happening in the marketplace and that we're doing around, well, how do you make your systems more effective and efficient in the current domain? But how do you think forward about what the next version of the system should look like? And Chip and I have written about this. There is a clear evolution happening driven by new technology And the one thing we're doubling down on is our commitment to FIN and RegTech that allows institutions internally to be better in the use of their data, to discover and manage risk, but also to share that data to begin to think about what that looks like from a sector-wide perspective, whether it's similarly situated banks, credit unions, correspondent channels. What does that look like? Well, I won't dwell on this long, but it's just been fascinating to us to see at our conferences increasingly there's a whole new set of people coming in, and we, for the first time, are going to do a fintech conference that's coming up in San Francisco, and it has people that didn't formally come to AML conferences. Completely agree with you. I think there are whole sets of communities of interest and commercial sectors that have to be now involved. The tech sector, obviously, the privacy sector, as we think about how do we use data, these new technologies. So privacy advocates, privacy technologies have to be a part of it. How we think about economic security writ large, and so the supply chain folks 
have to be a part of this. Export control people need to be involved. I think the fascinating thing, and this is something Chip has been a real profit on for a long time, is the very essence of the anti-money laundering system, the quest for greater transparency, accountability, traceability, the quest for understanding beneficial ownership, for example, is at the core of everything we care about from a national security perspective. And I would say one of the things that's different from when Treasury's War was published in 2013 and now is a deeper recognition of that. We need to know if Russian oligarchs are owning that property in New York. Are Venezuelan kleptocrats buying stables in Miami? Who is using the financial system to affect our elections? These core national security issues beyond Iran and North Korea and Al-Qaeda are now bringing into sharp relief the things we've talked about for a long time, which is systemically the things that we care about from an anti-money laundering perspective are fundamental to national security. So that means a whole new collection of actors. And I mean, one of the things, of course, is that all of this transparency that we want has a cost in terms of privacy. And I'll put out an opinion and let you react to it. I think that cat's out of the bag. And so there is going to be a question of how we have controls for the fact there are so many places that have so much information on us, how we use that for good, but then protect people. Absolutely right. You must have an answer. No, no way. We've thought about it. There aren't good, clear answers, because I think a lot of this resolves down to a balance, how we think about these different policy goals and regimes. But we co-hosted last year, uh, this is September of 2019, conference with Rusi in London, the think tank. We've got a little bit of a podcast that summarized it. But in any event, the point of that conference was to begin to explore exactly what you just asked, which is what are the policy tensions that emerge if we imagine the most effective system, a more efficient system. These technologies that hold great promise and hope in the use of data and use of artificial intelligence, machine learning. What if it all comes to pass? What are the policy tensions, though, that emerge? And so some of these are fairly obvious already between privacy and security versus total transparency. What does that look like, especially when you worry about autocratic states, if not tyrannical regimes, using the surveillance state to understand more about their customers? If we're very good at risk management and salami slicing risk around what Kieran's risk looks like versus Juan's risk versus Chip's, and we can do that in a much more refined and even predictive way, what does that do for things like social scoring? and then do process rights and financial inclusion. So there's all sorts of very interesting questions. If you imagine what is the most effective system that is transparent and traceable, but what are the counterpoise and counter policy views and interests? That someone and can fo- knows where I am all the time and what I bought and maybe even what I said. Exactly. And now there's a predictive algorithm around your ability from a credit perspective, but also maybe even a financial crime perspective to introduce risk into an institution. And so now you've got to worry about your financial crime risk and what that looks like. That starts to feel and look like minority report. And the question is, how do you balance those interests? Because we do need transparency and accountability more now than ever before, especially with kleptocracies and more sophisticated illicit financial actors and money laundering rings and sanctions evasion. The revelations from the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers have revealed there's still dark corners of the financial system that we need to tend to. And in some ways, technology is bringing that to the fore. In other ways, I think technology begins to solve some of the problems, some of the privacy technologies that are emerging, some of the ways that you think about sharing data or federated analytics, which is something we're committed to and working with technology partners on. 
these are tools and architectures that allow you to, in some ways, balance this pretty neatly. And so I think technology is a catalyst for some of these questions, but yeah. it's also a solution in many ways. I know you have a hat that's counterterrorism. What are the things that concern you? What keeps you awake at night? Quite a few things that, that I worry about. I think from... And if you have children, you can, yeah, we don't I, count those. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still worry about the ability of sophisticated actors, be they rogue regimes or non-state actors, to acquire weapons of mass destruction. And I think with the advancements and the democratization of some of the scientific tools out there on genetics... I worry about that. At the White House, I had the WMD terrorism portfolio along with the counterterrorism portfolio and other things that I had to worry about. So that's always present front of mind for me. Enabling that, what I worry about, not just for those reasons, but for illicit financing purposes, for movement of people, goods, arms, is the greater and greater convergence of non-state networks and state networks and the ability for rogue regimes, or maybe not even rogue regimes, to use proxies and non-state networks to get what they want, to influence in asymmetric ways. And I think we're seeing that in spades in all of the conflicts around the world that the United States is having to deal with. Finally, from a terrorism perspective, what I worry about, terrorism will always be with us and I think will always adapt. And so mm -hmm. I worry a lot about the ecosystem of extremism, both violent Islamic extremism and right-wing Neo-Nazi, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and the yeah. internationalization yeah. of that in a way that's symbiotic. I sat on a counter-violent extremism commission for CSIS a couple of years ago, and one of the things we pointed out in there, and I was dog with a bone on this, is we've got to watch these interrelated movements and ecosystems. And I think to a certain extent you've started to see that with the internationalization of these right-wing movements. We saw what happened in New Zealand seeing what's happened with these groups. In some ways, it almost doesn't matter what the ideological label is. It all starts to look like terrorism. And in many ways, that begins to present other challenges for those of us who also worry about terrorist financing. What does that international system look like, especially with new payment systems coming online, the use of social media as a means of not just communicating, but providing resources and material support? Those are things we've got to watch. And it's kind of a viral, perverse idea. That's, That's exactly right. And the ability to both advertise and produce the terror and the demonstration effect that that brings and the adaptation that comes with it. Juan Zarate, thank you for taking some time with me. Thank you, Karen. It was really an honor and really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Juan Zarate. I hope you liked what you heard and that you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.